Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and welcome to episode 845 with Dan Lyons. We've had a lot of episodes about how you can speak better, be more influential, more persuasive, picking the right words. Well, Dan Lyons coming at it with a totally different perspective, which is just shutting up and why and how silence can be one of your greatest superpowers. You'll learn one, how conversations dramatically influence our overall health and happiness. Two, how to tell if you're talking too much. And three, how pauses can wield enormous power. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to bits that we've mentioned here, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP845. Now here's a little bit about Dan. Dan Lyons is the author of Disrupted, My Adventures in the Startup Bubble, a New York best time selling memoir, and Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. He was also a writer for the hit HBO comedy series, Silicon Valley. As a journalist, he spent a decade covering Silicon Valley for Forbes, ran tech coverage at Newsweek and contributed to Fortune, the New York Times, Wired, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. His latest book is called STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. Big thanks to Dan for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Dan. Dan, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to be with you. Well, I'm so excited to chat about the wisdom of your book, STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. But first, I have to tell you, this is fun for me because I have seen every episode of Silicon Valley. Oh. And I'd love to hear if you had any particularly fond memories or moments from your work on the show. Well, the funny thing is I was on the writing staff and we would come in for, I'll say, 12 weeks or something before shooting began. And then I'd be gone. So I wasn't ever really there. Uh, I think once I stayed for a couple of weeks of shooting. So I never really saw the show get made. And what one thing that struck me, because I'm not a you know career TV guy or anything, was that one script that I worked on and delivered, when the episode came out, it had bits and pieces that resembled what was on the page. Uh (laughs) But because I think what happens is you write it, then they do a table read that goes well or poorly or somewhere in the between. And then they do another rewrite and then they start shooting. But then they tell on every take, tell these guys to improv. And so a lot of the improvised takes are better than what we wrote. And then then it goes get edited. And then 
at that point, they're looking at the whole season. So they're moving things around that used to be in uh. episode two or now in episode five. And so that was, uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how TV gets made and there were funny moments, but I'll tell you, it's kind of a grind. You just sit there and it's like 10 people in a room for imagine for 12 weeks, five days a week in the longest business meeting you've ever been in. <laughs> and yeah, some of the people are really funny, but also you spend a lot of time sort of agonizing, trying to make plots work. It sounds like ridiculous to say it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's not that hard, but I mean, it's mostly just sitting there dealing with boredom. So, well, I wondered how that works in practice and maybe different writers rooms have different work vibes and, and styles yeah. and approaches. But I, I imagine it would be a little bit of a divide and conquer. Like, okay, Dan, you go, you go right, then bring it back. But is it pretty much, nope, all of us are in the room together, yeah. slogging through each line of dialogue? Yeah, the, the latter. Okay. I don't know how all shows are, but there's always a showrunner. And the showrunner really is the head writer, and it's his show, mm -hmm. right? It's like, in our case, it was Alec Berg, who's, you know, really a real veteran. And we would all sit around and fill whiteboards with ideas together. And then once we had a, an episode that seemed like, okay, that's all there, Alec would go off and write a version of it in prose, not in screenplay format. And then um, he would dish that out to person A, person B, or me and say, okay, now go take this and put it into final draft, put it into screenplay format and give it back. So it wasn't really writing. It was more talking mm -hmm. and pitching ideas in the room. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for the inside scoop there. I'll tell you another thing I learned, which is, <laughs> and I was always guilty of this myself. You'd watch a show and be like, I think they're wrestling with this and that and the commentary. So every week on Silicon Valley, I think it was TechCrunch. Yeah. Or maybe it was another tech publication would do a big essay. Oh, one was the one that Sarah Lacey had. Anyway, they do this long, long piece about analyzing the, the story and who they thought this character was based on and what the themes were. And I can tell you, <laughs> nobody talked about themes or big <laughs> ideas in the room. It was just joke, 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 joke. How can we get more jokes? And what plot would be at least plausible? And yeah, nobody ever talked about big ideas or grand themes or doing satire. I mean, there was some, but yeah. So they would ascribe meaning to these episodes and I would read it and kind of crack up going like I was there when we <laughs> envisioned that. Believe me, that was, yeah. So, yeah. Uh. Well, that's funny and reassuring because I remember as a youngster when I was first learning about the very concept of a theme yeah. in literature and I was skeptical from the get-go. was like, do you really think the author had that in mind the whole time when they were doing that? And, and I think in hindsight, my take on this now is like, okay, books like 1984 or, or Animal Farm, like, okay, straight up, this is allegorical. This is trying to say yeah. something. But other things, I was like, I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to write a cool story and, and you just made that up. Yeah. I taught creative writing and sort of literature after grad school at, at University of Michigan. It always comes up like, do you think the poet or the short story writer or the novelist meant that? And I think sometimes, sometimes, yeah, clearly, you know what they were trying to do, what the point is they were trying to make with the story. But you get down to these details of like wordplay and stuff. 
And I actually came to believe, like, I don't care if the author meant that. It's kind of interesting. So let's just untangle that. Let's talk about that because it's kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I wonder too, intention, what was there, what wasn't. Oh, who was it? I was, oh, my son was telling about this. Oh, no, maybe it was, it was a painter, but he was asked, you know, to explain what's this mean he's like well if i could explain it in words i i I wouldn't need to paint it like you know it's 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 a painting just look at that you know so yeah i don't know yeah well and and sometimes words are something that we just just uh hold on to and and keep our mouths shut tell us this book stfu the power of keeping your mouth shut in an endlessly noisy world any particularly surprising fascinating counterintuitive discoveries you've made while putting this together. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a couple. Well, well, this podcast is about how to be awesome at your job. Mm -hmm. So I talk more about listening. There are a couple of things up front that have to do with health and well-being and the connections between how you speak and even like your immune system. And there's this fantastic researcher at the University of Arizona who for the past 20 years has been trying to study these connections between speech and other aspects of our lives and our, our physical and emotional well-being. And he's making these incredible breakthroughs. And he's not really ever been written about him. There, you know, there are articles about when each of these studies comes out, but I spent a lot of time with him. He's just a fascinating, fascinating guy. And what's his name? Matthias Mel, M-E-H-L. Well, so I don't know how I stumbled across him. I set out trying to figure out how to keep myself from talking too much, how to talk less, right? Because I had a problem with compulsive talking. And I started doing research like on two things. Why do some people talk too much and how can you fix it? And I found these researchers who had created something called the talkaholic scale. It was a test. You can take the test. It's in my book. And I pegged the needle on talkaholic, right? It's just way, way off the charts. And then started trying to figure out, well, how do you fix that? And so I go off on this journey. And then in that journey, I met Matthias Mel because in the 90s, there was this book called The Female Brain that came out and talked about who talks more, men or women. And for centuries, the stereotype was always that women are the talkers and men don't talk. And The Female Brain came out and said, yeah, women speak 20,000 words a day and men speak 6,000. Ballpark. And like 3X. And Matthias and some of the other people who were at, he was a grad student then at, at UT Austin, looked at that and said, that, that, that cannot be true. Those numbers cannot be true. So they, they built this little thing called the electronically activated recorder or ear. And it was basically the original was just a primitive kind of like digital rec- or recording device or maybe even tapes with a thing attached to it that would turn it on at random intervals. So you have people carry this for a day or a few days and it turns on and off and on and off. And from that, you can extrapolate how many words a day they're speaking. Mm-hmm. And what they found is like no difference. Men and women, absolutely the same, both about 16,000 words a day. And at the extremes, the highest talkers on the survey were all men. Okay. So it kind of blew the stall up. So then he said, well, God, if we can study how many words you speak, why couldn't we study what words you're using and what kind of conversations you're having? So they did the same thing, but they tried to extract the character of your conversations. Then they tried to correlate that with happiness. So they would have you carry the ear device and they would calculate 
how many substantive conversations you had, how many really good conversations you had in a day, and how much of your talk was just small talk and chit-chat. So how much of your day is chit-chat? And then they found that the people who had more good conversations and fewer bad conversations or less small talk turned out to be happier when they did self-scored reports of how happy are you. Then he said, wow, if people who have good conversations are happier, I wonder if they're healthier. So he did another pass-through, had recorded all these people, then matched them to blood draws that measured their immune system and found the same thing. Good conversations correlate with healthier immune systems, so a, a lower risk of heart disease and inflammatory disease. So, and it's gone a little beyond that too. But yeah, it's fascinating to think, it reinforced what I was thinking, that when I stopped just going blah, 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 and became intentional about my speech and spoke less, yeah, I did get happier. I did feel better. And I thought it was just that I was not annoying people as much, but Matthias sort of said, no, it's, it really is a, a physical reaction. And his example, if you want to know what a good conversation is, is that it's authentic and you're being honest and transparent. And the best way he puts it to me is, it's the difference between saying, hey, how are you? Or saying, hey, how are you? No, really, how are you? Right. So, and anyway, that was a huge thing. And I think it does apply to work because I think it is one thing maybe we don't always do at work is to really have deep, substantive conversations. And I don't mean like talk about your personal life, but at work, really digging into really important things, I think probably makes a healthier workplace. I think a lot of the lessons that I learned that apply to individuals also can be applied to an organization. Mm. Dan, that's a lot of powerful stuff. And it's funny, as we're speaking now, you've recovered from being a, a talkaholic. Well, what there is, I just gave you an overly long answer to well, a simple Well, no, question. but as I'm thinking, <laughs> as, I as I contrast the conversation we're having now yeah. with videos we've seen of you being interviewed elsewhere, and from years past, it is like you have a different demeanor. So check you out. Do you think so? Yeah. No, I don't know. I remember you talked about when you talked about Silicon Valley startups being a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, that guy's really going." Uh, it is like versus now. It's, it does. It's a different vibe in terms of just thoughtfully considering the pieces and the pacing. It's yeah, I see the difference, Dan. For what that's worth, that's good to know. My wife was very relieved that I did a lot of work on this. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, all right. Well, so far fascinating. The quality of our conversations can determine the quality of our happiness and health. Yeah, That's cool, but right there. So can you tell us, your, your subtitle is The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. In addition to being happier and healthier, what else can folks looking to be awesome at their jobs get from keeping their mouth shut? Well, I'll tell you another story. I, I do a lot about listening at the end. So if you're not talking, obviously you have the opportunity to listen. And it's something very few people can do well, and I include myself in that. I don't think I'm a great listener, although I'm working on it. So I'll tell you a story. There's a When I wanted to learn how to listen, there's an executive coach named Jerry Colonna. He's called sometimes the Yoda of Silicon Valley or the CEO whisperer. So he works with CEOs, either startup founders or sometimes big CEOs. And he does these like three-day intensely emotional boot camps. Everybody ends up sobbing, talking about 
their shame and guilt. He really digs deep into this. But the biggest thing they teach in these in these workshops is how to listen. And I think it's become pretty much conventional wisdom now that a leader needs to listen more than talk. So I called him up. I got an appointment with him. Said, "Can you just teach me?" A couple of the techniques you use in a boot camp. I can't come to a boot camp, but like, what are one or two exercises I would do while I was there? And give me a couple of quotes, you know, it's just as a journalist, just like, give me a couple of good quotes. And uh, so we get on the call and it's like this, right? On video mm-hmm. and say hi or whatever. And then I got my laptop, I have my keyboard here and I'm ready to ask a question. And he says, Dan, all right, stop talking. Okay. Stop taking notes. I mean, not talking. Stop typing. Stop taking notes. Stop. And just look at me. And I'm like, oh, crap, right? <laughs> and, and he's like, all right, so what are you thinking right now? And I'm like, enough of a jerk that I say, well, I'm thinking I'm not going to get anything useful for my chapter, <laughs> right? And he's like, okay, fine. He's like not rattled by that. <laughs> and he starts interviewing me, right? And the questions get more and more intense. and his final one is like, what do you fear? What do you most fear? What are you afraid of? And they ended up telling him this thing that I've probably told two people in my life, like my wife. And I don't know if I've even told anyone else, like really deep. And then I'm welled up. Like I'm kind of crying right, on this call. So, and then we're out of time. That's how you listen, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Right, that, well, listen, dude. So that's what, so I hung up and he's like, we can book another half hour to do the interview. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. But I hung up and I was like, no way am I ever getting near that guy ever again. Like he's a witch. I'm not getting near whatever he does. Right. But also I was kind of angry because I was like, now I got nothing. I wasted all this time. And then I realized what you just said, like he didn't tell me what to listening. He just showed me how to do it. And then he showed me how devastating it can be, like how powerful it can be if you do it well. And so I keep encountering this in work where you have meetings and someone says, let's, uh, let's have a half hour and there's five of us and someone just throws up, let me share my screen and throws up a PowerPoint deck with eight zillion data points on it and just talks for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And the, the rest of you just sit there going, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when or companies do all hands and it's just an hour 90 minutes of slam 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 slides and then five minutes for questions i've come to think that if you're a boss you're just a manager with a few direct reports or you're the ceo of a company that like listening is probably the most powerful thing you can do because imagine if you're a ceo if all you do is talk you never listen you have no idea what's going on in the business you become you live in a bubble so, yeah, I really, really became like born again about the the power of listening. Well, Dan, that's that's powerful stuff. And I, I'm thinking about times that I've really been listened to. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about this dude. He was his name's Corey McQuaid. He was with the, the Northwestern Mutual Financial Network. And we were just talking about insurance finance, life things. Mm-hmm. And so we had we did that in one meeting and he was he was really listening. And he was taking some notes. And then we had a follow-up meeting. He said, you know, Pete, I heard you say da 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 And it was, it was weird because it's like, I know I told you those things. And yet the fact that you internalized them, yeah. held them for this period of time, and are able to summarize, synthesize, represent, share implications is like casting a spell on me. It yeah. was wild. <laughs> 
Right? Yeah. yeah. It's incredibly powerful. And, and it applies across all sorts of things. There is research that I cite about working in sales and how important listening is, talking less, asking questions, and then really listening. So you're not trying to sell something. You're trying to figure out what the problem is that you can solve, right? And, and there's like the study where a company called Gong uses machine learning. They suck up like thousands of hours of sales calls, analyze them down and tell you your top performers ask this many questions, speak this many words. So this percent of the conversation is them talking versus the other. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Like across pretty much every aspect of your life. Like for me, it's more with my kids and my wife, but where I've seen amazing, amazing changes. All right. Well, so so just keeping your mouth shut enables listening, although it doesn't guarantee listening. Uh, yeah. Dan, can you share some some pro tips on once we've shut our mouths, what do we do in order to do great listening from there? All right. So there's a concept that people call active listening, which means, you know, you're not just hearing, you're actually leaning in. You really have to listen. And it's really, really hard to do one expert says if you're listening, really listening for 30 minutes and you're not, you're not exhausted at the end of it, then you weren't listening hard enough. So it's, yeah, it's a skill I think you can develop. And there are exercises. Like one is you and I would sit down and I think we pick three questions and I ask you those three and you answer them. And I think you, you speak for five minutes without being interrupted and then we flip it. Maybe it's just one question. I mean, anyway, so we take turns. And if you don't use the whole five minutes, we still sit there in silence. Like, okay. I don't speak for five minutes. And we flip it around. And then you just talk about afterwards, like, how did you feel when you were listening? How did you feel when you were talking? So you talk about the, the exercise. There are others I've, I've heard, yeah, where it's just a, a pretty much a recall, like the, with the, the guy you mentioned. Listen to someone talk for 10 minutes, then write down everything you can remember. Don't take any notes while they're talking. So you just listen, then you go write it down. And it's amazing how little you remember, or you can get better at it. But I think it's a skill you can develop. Mm -hmm. All right. So you just work it. So You're probably really good at it. I mean, to be a good interviewer, I think is, I've come to believe, I used to think it was about having great questions. I now think it's about being a great listener and then responding. Yeah, I think the advantage I have in this context is we're blessed to have so many incoming pitches and we proactively seek out other folks so that by the time we're talking, I am so fascinated <laughs> by what you have to say that I it's like I'm chopping at the bit to to get all get all that wisdom. I'm the same way. And I used to be a journalist, you know, for a long time. And that's what I loved about the job. I could go meet fascinating people. They would talk to me because I came from a magazine. So they thought, you know, okay, yeah. And just hear their stories and then go back and write their stories. But yeah, it was fascinating. I still like that. Like this book was really me just calling all sorts of interesting people. I interviewed, I found a psychologist who works with prisoners in California. And the big problem they have is when they get up for a parole hearing, they start and they're okay, but then they get a little provoked and they start talking too much and they will basically blow their parole hearing. Mm. And so she works with these, uh, mostly guys, right, I guess, and to teach them how to like breathe and relax and how to not lose it during an interview and how to just stay calm and under talk. 
All right. All right. So when it comes to keeping your mouth shut, we've got better health, better happiness, better relationships, mm-hmm. and the opportunity to, to listen to really impact folks in a cool way and strengthen those connections. Well, now can you share with us, how do we know if we are talking too much? But that is a really good question. I, in my case, I just knew that I was annoying people. I would leave a party and say to my wife, did I talk too much? And she'd be like, yeah. Because I mean, mostly often driven by anxiety. So I would get anxious at a party and I would start talking and then I would just keep talking. I mean, one way you know you're talking too much is someone tells you, right? Someone yep. just says to you, hey, you really monologue too much. You should uh, let other people get a word in. I think a lot of people who really talk too much basically know. A lot of people have said to me, oh, yeah, I want to read your book because I know I talk too much. It's like a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So they already know. It's not, we have to look so. for some special clues in terms of the body postures or body language <laughs> of the people we're talking to. You just kind of know. Well, you see people trying to pull away, you know what I mean? Uh, their feet are pointed away. <laughs> yeah, they literally start to turn their body or they go, oh, I got to meet. There are clues. And that's the problem. Some people are such compulsive talkers, like they don't pick up on those cues. And so I actually have a, a part of the book, too, about how to escape an overtalker and there's another version of a Nova talker who's the interrupter. So how do you break the habit of interrupting? And then also, how do you deal with someone who's interrupting you? Again, and it's almost always men. I mean, men interrupt women constantly. The stats are incredible. And there's just lots of research. It's not like one study found this. But yeah, so then it's a lot of times men aren't aware that they're interrupting constantly mm-hmm. until you record a conversation and then show it to them. And they're usually mortified. Okay. All right. With the the Gong group that was doing that machine learning and data analysis on the high-performing sales folks, was there something like a, a magical ratio or range associated with questions asked or proportion listening? The most successful sales reps asked 11 to 14 questions. Fewer than that, and you're not digging deep enough, but more than that, and the call starts to feel like an interrogation. And is that like in half an hour or what what time frame are we thinking here? They analyzed more than 500,000 calls, found that sales calls with the best close rates were one in which reps knew how to keep quiet and ask questions instead of making a sales pitch. 11 to 14, they deduced that calls work best when the questions are scattered throughout. And when a rep identifies three to four specific problems, no more, no fewer, that the customer needs to solve, the best reps made calls feel like conversations. Ah, they spent 54% of the call listening, 46% talking. The worst reps talked 72% of the time. And I don't have how long a call was to land those 11 to 14 questions. But yeah, those are some interesting data points. I don't know how prevalent the idea is. I think it's an outdated idea that sales guys are just, salespeople are just talk, talk, talk. They're fast talkers and they twist your arm or something, but. Well, I think that my impression is that most sales folks are aware that they should ask questions and listen. Yeah. (laughs) And yet the common (laughs) practice is often not as much that, even though that is the the best practice that is published and known and promulgated. That's my sense anyway. I think so too. And I think that's only because it's really hard. Even if you know you should do it, Mm -hmm. it's really difficult to do that well. 
And it's a skill you really have to work on. All right. Well, let's say we're after those benefits of talking less. Yeah. We're, we clearly understand, okay, yep, I am talking too much. Can you break down for us, Dan, some of the, the key practices or step-by-steps to successfully talking less? Yeah. I actually came up with five, I guess you call them exercises that I do sort of very, not every day, but I think of it like a workout that it's like, you know, going to the gym and you don't even have to do this all day, every day. You might pick an hour or an opportunity to use one of these. It's how I I view it. So the first one I have is called when possible, say nothing, like, which is very obvious, but you know, it's often very possible to say nothing when you're, I don't know, checking out at the store, something. There are occasions where gabbers like me will start striking up a conversation with someone where you don't really need to. So that's one I, I practice with. Another one is is mastering the power of the pause. So there's this, there's this idea that it, when you pause, it makes people uncomfortable. And it can be uncomfortable for you to sit with a pause. There's some research that shows it only takes four seconds, a four-second break in a conversation for people to start feeling uncomfortable. So if you can master that and live with that uncomfortable silence, you have a lot to gain, actually even in public speaking. But in negotiations, for example, pauses are a really huge thing. And I interviewed a few like master negotiators about just that, how to use a pause strategically in a negotiation. Well, now, Dan, that's intriguing. So four seconds yeah. of pause makes people uncomfortable. And, and so are we saying, one, live with that yourself, yeah. but is it sometimes the right answer to go ahead and have them feel uncomfortable in that pause? Well, no, no. Yeah, he's exactly right? right. So like car salesmen, <laughs> I think are trained to do this and to, you know, say, here's the price and then sit. Mm-hmm. And according to one negotiator I interviewed, he's a woman in Boston, she's brilliant. She's like, when they do this, people actually start negotiating against themselves. Yeah. It's often too with a job offer and a salary offer that you know is too low and they'll just sit there. So if her whole idea is, no, you just do the same back. You go, well, mm, I'll think about that. <laughs> you just wait, right? And she told me something evil, which is that, I don't know if it's all the time or at least once, she would practice on car salesmen because she felt like they were fair game and they're out there and they're, it's like easy prey. You can, you can, they're always available for practice. So she would find, she got an offer for bait and switch offer in the paper or no, a flyer in the paper. If you want to trade in your car, you can get this much and get this much of a deal on whatever new car it was, like some crazy offer you weren't going to get. And so she walked in and said, Hey, I'm interested in this offer. And she told me, I didn't even want to get rid of my car. I like my car. I had no desire to buy a new car. And she said, well, so I saw this offer. I was like, well, well, you know, that's, yeah, we can't do that, but blah, 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 we don't have one of those, but we can do blah. And she was like, no, I, I came in because of this offer. So, you know, if you can give me this offer, I'll buy the car. And then she just waits. And she said, you know, they'll try to like stall you. They'll go out back and talk to the manager. Yeah. There is no manager. Mm-hmm. Like she worked in the car business too. She was like, they're not going back. They were going to have a cup of coffee and come back. They just make you sit there. So she said, I brought like a thermos and a book and I would just sit there and wait. Cause she was like, you know, I picked a day where I'm just going to do this. And it, she said she knew it wasn't going to end up in her buying a car. So it was really just sharpening her own skills. Can I just go and sit with this quiet? And then f- eventually, you know, you go back and forth a few times and you say, well, I guess you're not going to get a car today. Bye. 
But yeah, so using that discomfort, there's a story too of in the book of a guy who's making a big sale to, I don't know, uh, someone in charge of government in the Middle East to have like a, a franchise to sell candy or chocolate in this country. And salesman says, well, here's the price. And the guy on the other side says, hmm, I think that's too high. So the other guy just sat there. And the story goes, he sat there for 45 minutes. <laughs> and then the finally the customer said, okay, we have a deal. <laughs> they just sat there. Like, and I, that to me almost sounded like it can't be true, but yeah. <laughs> so pauses are very powerful. I had other things where I try to find, add silence to my life. I took up, I, I found this stuff called forest bathing, which is, you know, you go out in the woods and you don't really do much. You just sit in the forest, usually with a guide, which I found really good. I also think you should quit social media. I think you should just, okay. if not completely, then almost as much as you can. I think it's, I think social media is creating mental illness at a societal level, which is also what pushes us all to talk too much. Well, yeah, there's some spooky data, especially with teen and preteen girls. Like, mm. Yeah, right. But also it's just, you think about it, the model they have is we need to keep you on the site as long as possible. So you look at as many ads as possible. How do we do that? Well, if you're just reading, you're not going to stay that engaged. So we need to get you talking and sharing and retweeting and getting in arguments with people. So the best way to get you engaged is to make you angry. Yeah. So we put stuff into your feed. We figure out, you know, this using machine learning algorithms, they know collecting thousands of data points about you, like down to how long did you pause over that yeah. photo, you know, everything. So they know exactly how to provoke you. But the problem is then that anger you experience online carries with you back into your real life. So you get on this dopamine cycle if it feels good and then you stop and you crave the dopamine. But also you're also creating this, this cycle of just epinephrine just flowing through your bloodstream all the time, which causes all sorts of health problems. So like, for example, you notice how angry people are now compared yeah. to 20 years ago and what's changed in 20 years? I mean, the internet, social media. So yeah, I think it's, if you can stay away from, I actually think there's a larger problem of information overload where there's just so much stuff. I have statistics on how many movies or how many hours of entertainment Netflix is going to make this year. Like The number is crazy, right? So we just have a lot coming at us. And I don't think our brains have evolved as fast as the internet has. All right. So we got some silence. We got quitting social media. Any other key practices? Well, the last one was learn how to listen, which we already talked about. But I tell you, I also interviewed a, a woman who runs this thing called the International Listening Association. You can imagine that there actually is, a th I mean, I couldn't imagine there is a thing like that. And they have an annual conference. And I said, <laughs> I said, what is just like, people walking around, not talking, you know? And she said, oh, everybody makes that joke. <laughs> and she and I have become friends since then. But she also is a professor. She teaches a course in listening. That's like the whole course is just how to listen. And it turns out to be very powerful in that you can be interviewing someone I found. I interviewed someone who's really, really shy, like almost couldn't get on the phone to talk, like really, really has social anxiety. And so I knew that conversation is going to be difficult. And if I go in rapid fire questions, blah, 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 like that's going to just shut it down. And so I had to really take a deep breath and ask my questions and not fire off the next question, just listen and 
And it kind of worked. And I told this professor about it. I said, like, you know, what's amazing is this woman, the more it went on, she became really fascinating. Like she was super shy and uptight at first and really, you know, like uptight. And by the end, she was laughing and telling me stories and about her life and growing up. And I said, she was the most amazing person. And my friend, the professor said, that actually, that's what happens. When you listen to people, they actually do become more interesting. Yeah. So I was like, wow, that's, that's really powerful. And what's the name of the professor? Her name is Sandra Bowden Lerner. That's B-O-D-I-N dash L-E-R-N-E-R. I should, I should introduce you. You might find her as, to be a really interesting guest. She first got a career, she was like a public speaking coach mm-hmm. for you know, people in business. And now she does that, but she also does listening workshops in companies because they realized, oh, yeah, it's not just about speaking well. And one point she made to me is really fascinating, which is that you know, we talk a lot about in companies now of we need to have these difficult conversations. We need to have these conversations reckon with with big issues but nobody ever tells us how to have a conversation yeah so yeah she's a fascinating woman that's good well tell me dan anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things no i'm all good i appreciate you taking an interest in my book oh yeah well now could you share a favorite quote something you find inspiring well along the lines of this winston churchill's mother was named jenny jerome and she once described this is about listening, a story about listening. She wants to describe the difference between having dinner with William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli, so two very big, important British politicians. And she said, when she had dinner with Gladstone, I left thinking that he was the cleverest man in England. When I had dinner with Disraeli, I left feeling that I was the cleverest woman. Mm-hmm. And to me, that always has summed up why listening works, what the effect it has on the other person. And I imagine she liked the latter more afterwards. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Oh, I think it would be Matthias Mail's research about good conversations and the immune system. It's a remarkable report. All right. And a favorite book? I'll just tell you what I'm reading right now, which is The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. It's like an unbelievable book. It's huge. I guess as a writer, I admire it because it won the Pulitzer Prize. It just the, the writing is amazing and just the amount of research he did and how he shapes it into a narrative, into a story is, is phenomenal. All right. And a favorite tool, something you use to be more awesome at your job? Oh, at work, you mean? Yeah, I've become a big believer in notebooks. I got this from while I was researching my book, reading Richard Branson's book, and Richard Branson is a big believer in listening. And one thing he does is he always carries a notebook and a pen and takes notes. And he says, it's one way to become a better learner. You're forcing yourself to learn and write things down. And then also you have a record of every meeting you have. So yeah, in the last two years, I've become really, really a believer in notebooks. All right. And a favorite habit, something you do that helps you be all the more awesome at your job? I put sticky notes above my computer screen on the wall that say things like quiet, listen, wrap it up. Mm. I just put reminders not to talk too much. And that habit, it has helped me. All right. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? Yeah, I think it is that the first beat 
of the book for me was talking less, listening more, speaking with intention can do so much for you, right? It can make you happier, healthier, more successful, blah, blah, blah. The second thing I realized that I did not anticipate going in is that the real power of it is that you make the lives of the people around you better. So that's the real ripple effect of this. And that was quite profound for me. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Oh, my website, danlions.io. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Next time you're in a meeting, which will be tomorrow, right? Um, you probably have eight tomorrow. See if you can listen more than talk. Oh, here's a great exercise. If you're on a Zoom call with one other person, if the person will agree to let you record the call, record the call, take the recording, send it to rev.com or something like that, have it transcribed, right? Then print it out and you see literally in front of you, just in blocks of text, how much you talked, how much the other person talked, and then keep trying to work on that so you're less and less. That to me was like an eye-opening exercise and yeah, I think a really good one to to try. If you want to learn to listen more, talk less, that would be a great exercise. All right. Dan, this has been a treat. I wish you much fun as you keep your <laughs> mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for letting me talk for so long about not talking, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Got a huge kick out of Dan's take on when possible, say nothing. And that's often quite possible. And I think it really rings true. And I'm reminded of Mike Birbiglia as a comedian. And I think it's him. He has this bit which goes, what I should have said was nothing. Wise words from Mike Birbiglia, comedian and Dan Lyons, journalist, author. Often that is the best answer is saying nothing, opening up the possibility of listening and strengthening relationships. Good stuff from Dan. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP845. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.